I, I, I can't say enough about how wrong I was about Reanimator. I, 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 I thought no one would ever really see this movie. I just saw it as a juicy role um, and an opportunity to be on a set for four weeks and, yeah. and learn uh, learn what a movie set was all about and, and how this whole thing worked. I never imagined that it would be uh, iconic. Hello. Welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. In 2009, my friend, the brilliant Stuart Gordon, invited me to come and see his new play, a one-man show playing at the Steve Allen Theater in Los Angeles called Nevermore about the life of Edgar Allan Poe. The star of the show was Jeffrey Combs. Sitting in the theater, I watched as Jeffrey not just captured Poe, but as one critic put it, seemed to be channeling him. It's remarkable to see Jeffrey in the role, as tortured and tragic as he is funny. But that's the thing with Jeffrey, he's very much that chameleon actor. We never know what we're going to get with Jeffrey, but we always know it'll be a hell of a show. From his iconic role as Herbert West in Reanimator to his Brevera performance as the nutty Milton Dammers and Peter Jackson's The Frighteners, Jeffrey has become one of the most recognizable actors in the genre, something he really didn't set out to do, but has certainly accomplished. Jeffrey and I got to explore his early formative years on stage, which he says without I'd probably be pumping gas. The mixed blessing of Herbert West and becoming very known for one particular role, as well as being in films that came through the back door and found an audience but seemed to put off casting directors and studios. We also dig into his many experiences working with Stuart Gordon and the shorthand you can develop when you work with some of the same people over and over again. Also, how Stuart loved to make actors do really weird things, and if you've seen films like From Beyond or Castle Freak, well then you know what I'm talking about. I believe Jeffrey to be not just one of the greatest actors working in the genre, but one of the greatest actors working, period. His work has always excited and inspired me because as you'll hear here, Jeffrey doesn't just play a part, he gives them life. Hey, Jeff. Well, hi, Kevin. It's been a while, hasn't it? How long has it been? <sighs> the last time I saw you in person was, we're talking like 10 years ago. Kind of around the time that I was doing my Poe show. Yes, I remember because I took D. Wallace, who I was doing a project with at the time, and the director, Richard Kelly, to see the show. And then Stuart took us back to see you after the show, and you had like the nose half off and stuff, and we're sort of, you know, the after show glow. And we came back and saw you. And I, but I saw the show. What was the name of that theater in L.A. where you did it, where you did Nevermore? Well, that theater is gone now. Oh, is it? it torn down. That's a drag. Cool little theater. It was uh, called the Steve Allen Theater at the time. That's it. Yeah, I remember going to see the show because you, you, both you and Stuart Gordon, who's directed the show, had uh, had told me about it. And I was excited because I didn't even know that you were going back to stage, which... Uh, it was kind of where you started, of course, but but I'm assuming prior to Nevermore, you hadn't been back on the stage for some time, right? 
for quite a while. And yeah. when I had been on stage, I had never in my career done a one-man show, which is a whole other, I've come to find uh, a whole other experience. You know, one of the things about theater and even film is the camaraderie. Yeah. Actors, uh, hey, let's work on that scene. Uh, let's try that moment again. Uh, let's go have a beer. You you are kind of solo and, and there's a lot of uh, lonely time where it's just you. Uh, it's the, it's a strange experience. Let's sort of jump in from the beginning here. So you were born in California, but your parents were from the Ozarks? That's right. The uh, Northwest Arkansas, uh, the Combs line that I, I spring from, uh, like came into Arkansas in like 1830, like it was a wilderness, you know, from Tennessee. And uh, basically until my father and post-World War II uh, had never left. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, like something out of a Steinbeck novel, Grapes of Wrath or something, it's like, well, the jobs are in California. And so the big leap, uh, he, he wasn't alone in that. I'm glad he did. <laughs> yeah. So what brought your parents out to California? Jobs. Jobs. Okay. Opportunity. Yeah. Right. And so you, you know, you, you were born in California. So did you sort of getting the acting bug at a particularly young age? How did that sort of come about for you? Not at all. I don't think so at all. I was always a little different. Um, you know, I'm the only one in my family that's left-handed. I don't know if that has kind of something to do with it. I just, I was quite a little firecracker, a lot too much energy, uh, fidgety, moving, and and very um, uh, imaginative. <laughs> uh, running around with a towel on all the time deciding whether or not I was Superman or Zorro went back <laughs> and forth. And um, the formative idea of being like having a profession as an actor didn't really, uh, didn't really gel. I, I didn't really think of myself that way. I do remember watching movies and TV and reenacting them in my room, but I, it, but that's all sort of kids do that. You know, it wasn't until I guess, and quite by accident, uh, in high school, uh, I took a drama class for an easy A in girls. And um, an, as an elective, um, I did not audition for the first play of the year. Not going to do that. Don't want to do plays. Uh, <laughs> somebody dropped out and the drama teacher kind of cornered me. Said, I want you to take over that role. And I was like, mm but he wore me down and I remember not being happy about that one. But just why did I say yes? And then I naively wanted to do plays. I did th three more plays in high school and I was just very lucky, very, very lucky that only 20 miles away was a small college with a fabulous theater department. That's really seminal. That was really the, uh, the key, key event that, uh, formed me, that taught me the, the higher ideals of being an actor, the discipline, the, the hard work that it took. Uh, uh, and it was a factory of doing shows. 
The man who ran it was a visionary and, and, and there was repertory every summer, six plays. You, 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 it didn't stop. And I worked with phenomenal people from all over the country that would audition to get into the company. And uh, it was the foundation of everything. Without that, you know, I'd probably be pumping gas or something. <laughs> Do you remember kind of that point where you sort of had that Maybe maybe you can do this, and maybe I want to try to pursue that. Like, did you have that kind of? Mo- do you remember that moment? Yeah, who who doesn't? Uh, any actor yeah. does that. Uh, all I knew is is that in my college formative years, uh, I didn't really have to concern myself with that because I was so busy doing productions, rehearsing in the morning, rehearsing another play in the afternoon, and performing another play at night. Uh, it was. Uh, just a constant uh, um, tempering uh, uh, all kinds of genres from comedies to classics to new plays to Shakespeare across the board. I was really being saturated with all kinds of styles and a lot of really talented people to observe uh, and see, oh, oh, this is, this is a noble profession, and uh, you, you you must uh, commit yourself to it. Someone said a long time ago, it is not a career, it's a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, it is. Uh, but I knew that I was still needed some training, not just doing plays, but I needed training. And I went to a, got accepted to an actor training program in Seattle at the University of Washington, and I was there for three years. And then right out of there, almost early before I graduated, uh, I got offered to go to the Globe, Shakespeare, Old Globe in San Diego. Fabulous uh, experience. Uh, So then I got on the regional theater circuit, did a lot of theater. So for me, you know, it wasn't until actually I went to the Globe that I started to kind of get paid for this. To me, being paid for it was bonus, I suppose. I, I was doing it for the, and still do it, for the love of it. Although pay me is good, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but that's where my enthusiasm was first, not in terms of monetary uh, purposes. Uh, so, so that was just gravy. I'm being paid to do this, what I love. Okay. And you just keep at it. And uh, opportunities just kept kind of coming along. That doesn't mean I ever, every time I turned around, there was an opportunity. Believe me, my career has been filled with dead spots. Worry, uh, maybe I should get out of this. Maybe I should go find a job. I'm worthless. This isn't going well. A lot of disappointments. A lot of, you, you, there's a lot of rejection <laughs> with being an actor. Thank you very much. And you know, you didn't get it. Yeah, I mean, and for you as a young actor and, you know, as a young person in general, sometimes, you know, confidence and self-esteem is is kind of on, on, there's an onslaught going on there when you're a young person. How do you think for you at the time, you know, a young guy going out auditioning for shows and stuff, how did you sort of develop a way to deal with that rejection so that you could keep going? Well, I think I wasn't in a hurry. For one thing, uh, any actor that says, you know, I'm going to be an actor and gets in their car and drives to L.A. and hits the ground and goes, I'm here, uh, is probably going to be pretty unprepared. Um, 
What really helped me was before I ever came to LA, I had already had under my belt maybe uh, a good 10 years of experience, eight years of theater experience packed with, uh, with, 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 you know, really enriching events uh, that sort of said, you know, you, you're capable at this. So when I came to LA and uh, hit the, uh, hit the wall in terms of like, who are you? And I don't not, not getting anything. Uh, I had a backlog for myself. I had a, well, listen, uh, I just have to stick with this because up until now I've done all right. So I can't let this get me down. It's just an adjustment that I have to make. Sometimes it doesn't happen fast enough. You, you know, you want it to happen faster. Anybody does. You just have to kind of find a, an inner confidence, not a cockiness, but just kind of a calm sort of, I, I, I can do this. It just takes uh, patience and diligence. Right. And do you remember sort of as a young actor having, you know, particular film actors that you, that you followed or who you'd go to the theater to, you know, just to see that, that person in a movie and go, wow, you know, I really love this guy, the way this guy does is what he does. Yeah. I was kind of all over the map with that. You know, I, I, I really liked a lot of uh, different actors and I'm happy to say that sometimes, uh, you know, I've got to meet those. One, one of my, uh, the, the, there's an actor, a character actor named Clue Gulliger. Do you know him? Brilliant. Yeah. He's wonderful. Yeah. Okay. I loved Clue Gulliger when I was a kid. He was always on TV and Westerns and he was a soft-spoken, understated, salt-of-the-earth kind of actor also had a you know a streak of danger about him unpredictability um and uh, i found out years later i was through friends that they said you want to go to clue's birthday party i went clue's birthday party and he's they said yeah we're we're friends with clue and i'm like you're kidding they said no and he's a fan of yours he loves reanimator it's like Clue loves reanimator. <laughs> this is mind blowing. This is one of the yeah. wonderful things about this career is that every once in a while I can meet somebody that meant something to me when I was uh, when I was young. So um, that's a very surreal thing. He and he's still going. I think. I think Clue Gallagher is still. I don't know if he's still working, but he's I, he still goes to events and stuff. I think he's ninety nine. I think it turns a hundred this year. He's so cool. He's, I remember when I lived in LA back around the time when, when you were doing the show and stuff. And I remember going to this, it was just like a screening of a, you know, one of those at the, one of the old sort of art house theaters. Beverly in, Cinema, probably. Probably the Beverly. Yeah. Well, yeah. Tarantino, and, uh, Tarantino owns now, you know? Yes. Right. Yeah. That was, that's the where it was. Well, it was and I went front to, row. <laughs> yeah. There was, but they were showing like, Something it was like the Carnival of, of Lost Souls or some it was some old black and white horror movie, and I went because I used, I loved going to stuff like that when I lived in LA, and just standing in the lobby with a soda it was Clue Gallagher, and I was like, only in LA does this shit happen, you know, like where I grew up, there was no you're gonna run into a movie star, um, 
But that would happen all the time. You'd run into someone in you know, a grocery store. I know. Sort of, I know the people that I've seen in a grocery store. You know, like, mm, I better not say anything. But wow, there he is. Yeah. It's hard sometimes. You want you kind of want to go and be like, I think you're super cool or whatever. And you know, you want to gush or whatever. Most of the time, I've managed to hold it back. Yeah. You know. I worked with Sean Connery when I was really young in my career, like 17, 18. And, right. uh, you did. Yeah. That sounds yeah. like a great thing. You know, in the vein of kind of horror, what was the first movie you remember seeing that really scared you? A, uh, the Brain That Wouldn't Die. Oh, yeah. Black yeah. and white, really cheesy movie. But the end, <laughs> uh, the matinee at the local movie theater, I, I'd walk there because I remember walking home from it. That's what I remember and being freaked because at the end, and you know, this is so like, can't make this up, but the end of the movie is, uh, you know, a head, a woman, a head, severed head on a table. Sound familiar? And the camera is coming in slow. She's coming in real, real slow. And she's just saying over and over, kill me, kill me, kill me, kill me. And I, I, and, and, and uh, as a boy, uh, it was just uh, what a frightening idea, <laughs> what a frightening thought, what a nightmare to end that way. And uh, a very different tone than than how it goes in Reanimator. Yeah, quite. Yeah. But but the, but it but it was impactful to me. You know. Yeah. Did and would you say like prior to starting a career working in horror, were you a, a horror fan? Uh, I was a movie fan. I wouldn't say right. I was particularly a horror fan. I, I I remember when you know I'm 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 old as dirt here, but I, I remember when I was in high school, like uh, uh, Night of the Living Dead was at the drive-in. It's like I'm yeah. not going to that. I am not going to go see that. I just didn't want to. No, 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 no. Too freaky for me. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I I liked horror, but not you know. I, you know, I remember seeing matinees and, and of course, you know, Saturday TV or late night TV, seeing, you know, chopped up sort of horror movies with commercials and stuff like that. But I, but I wouldn't say that I was just, uh, just immersed in just horror because I love it. Like, did you see, you know, the old Corman pictures or the, the Hammer stuff or the Universal Monsters? Did you see any of that stuff? Sure, I did. Sure, I did. Yeah. All the classic Universal stuff and the Hammer movies were certainly big in reruns on TV when I was a kid. Um, I don't remember too many Corman movies being on TV, though, frankly, at the time. Yeah. And um, so yeah. he did all the Poe movies, you know, I, I wondered well, if you, you had know, seen. Them. I'm sorry, you can call them. Poe movies, if you want. I, I, I yeah. don't recognize Poe in very many of them. The titles. Then, well, well, so, what's that? I could say I'm doing a White Album, but it's not the Beatles. <laughs> Price was fun in them, though, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. Very arch. You know, you and I in the past have had dinner and, and talked about films you've done, but one that I had never seen was your first, The Frightmare. Frightmare. Yeah. That was a bit of an eye-opener for me. Uh it was really not my first movie, but maybe my first like supporting role in a movie. And it was very low budget. And they, you know, coming from theater, especially regional theater, you, you don't really run across a lot of uh, 
hanky panky shenanigans, where's my paycheck kind of stuff, you know? And so this was like, wow, these people are uh, a little shady here. <laughs> this is a little, you know, I remember them calling all the actors together and saying, we would uh, like for you all to sign this paper, waiving your overtime, waiving our overtime. You mean you're not paying us already? Yeah. But now you want us to, and you know, guess what? Uh, you know, someone called SAG, not me, but someone called SAG, and SAG said, you know, you can't do that. It was a SAG shoot and they tried that? Yes. <laughs> Like we would just go, oh, okay, sure. <laughs> so it was like, so this is Hollywood. It was kind of fun though watching it because it's like, you know, it's it's a scrappy little movie. It's it, it, your character also wears this bright red shirt. So in every scene, I could find you very quickly. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember if that was even my shirt, my clothes. I don't remember because um, you know that's the kind of budget it had. Um, yeah, it, it was. It had a certain it had a, at its core. It had a really good idea. This notion, yeah, that's what I'm gonna say. Fans and their iconic uh, sort of Vincent Price sort of guy dies, and they decide to break into the mausoleum and bring him back and prop him up and have dinner with him. Yeah, uh, at its core, that's a that's a pretty good hook. I was watching the movie, and I'm thinking about. You've got guys like uh, Robert England, you know, guys that that sort of Tony Todd, some you know, some of the guys that have become very identified with playing a, a character. And I suppose for you, you know, you're often in a horror world identifies Herbert West, and you get this one character that people and, and fans start to really associate with you. And I'm curious, like, when you started to see that Herbert West, for example, was a character that was really catching on for people and people would recognize you from it. Did you ever have that concern of like, fuck, am I going to get stuck with this guy now for the rest? Of, like, is this who I'm going to be? People are we're going to want to talk to you about for the rest of my career. I think any actor would. It's a mixed blessing. It's a blessing at first because, hey, uh, you know, I'm known for something. I'm known for something. So, uh, so, so that's good. That's a beginning. That's, that's a good thing. And then, um, and then it sort of dawned on me, uh, that like, I would get sort of inquiries about, Hey, would you be in our movie and wear a lab coat and carry a needle? It was like, well, <laughs> okay. So that's, so I'm known for it. And you just want to capitalize on it by me just doing the same thing over and over and over. Uh, not interested in that particularly. That wouldn't be that wouldn't be a good move, I don't think. You know, Reanimator had kind of a strange gestation. I mean, it came upon the scene. There was a lot of talk about it, but it kind of had a little bit of a backlash for us actors. Um, it was looked upon in the town as sort of this little upstart thing that came in in the middle of the night in the back door. And it was maybe uh, tawdry and maybe uh, really, uh, let's just say doors didn't open up for me to like, hey, come and, you know, the studios didn't jump. But 
on it. Uh, they they just saw it as a little anomaly over there, and you know they could never do something like that. Uh, so it was just kind of a you'd think I had this anticipation of wow this thing has got some juice under it, and you'd think that that would prompt something, and it kind of just did not at all. I remember going to for an audition and um, the casting director was a woman just had a whole like you're in that huh <laughs> okay I see but then it com- comes along VHS and comes along DVD and more and more each generation becomes uh, it just kept building in its um, in its fan base it was a force. Uh, yeah, those are rare. Let me tell you, it's very rare. You can get a Herbert West action figure, and he's in comic books, and it's always your portrayal of Herbert. It, you know, he's a the character's public domain. Not the comic books, comic books, I have an issue with. They they, they, they still look like my look a little bit, so they don't have to like what pay me. <laughs> uh, and but it's yeah. Herbert West, and you know, you know yes. if you really yeah. want to be Herbert West, then go back to the source material. He was blonde. This is what you deal with in this. I've seen Reanimator quite a few times, and you know uh, that was sort of my introduction to to you and Stuart's work together. And Stuart, you know, went on to become a friend, and you're a friend. And I got to know people who who were part of making this this movie that that I was a big fan of. And but it was funny to me because you know I think maybe for being a bit sheltered because where I grew up, you know, I, there wasn't a lot of other kids I knew like me that were big horror fans and stuff like that. And you know, I was in a suburb, and so I, you know, it wasn't like I didn't grow up in LA or anything. So I thought to me that Reanimator was like an actor's piece. That's how I saw it. It had gore and stuff in it. But it was dialogue driven. It was character driven. It was performance driven. It wasn't a, like just a gore show, and it wasn't a slasher movie. It seemed like very there was a lot of theater in it to me, which makes sense if you know Stuart Gordon. Well, because it's his first movie, and he came from the theater, and a particular kind of theater, which he really did bring that kind of uh, viewpoint to cinema. That's one of one of the things about reanimator that's so amazing is in a medium that is passive watch it and you're in your own little bubble and every once in a while you may laugh with the crowd Stuart was able to create a group experience the way to really see reanimator is in a full house yeah yeah which i got to do Later in life at the little theater in Toronto, it was a blast. You know, it had like it had this like hockey game like atmosphere, people yelling at the screen. Oh, yeah, exactly. Participatory. A lot of the movies you and from Beyond has a bit of that. It's crazy. People yell stuff at it. You know what I mean? It's Castle Creek, not so much. You know, I remember watching you in that movie at a young age, and I thought when I started out that I wanted to be an actor. And there and and I had a kind of handful of actors that were the people I sort of studied. It was Donald Pleasance, who was the hero. Yes. Um, James Woods, because I loved his edgy, like, I just thought he really was electric when he was on the screen. Right. And you. Huh. And I remember watching Reanimator and, and trying to just sort of get my hands on anything I could to see these actors, you know, you and Donald Pleasant and James Woods doing what you did. And so it's just so odd to me that, you know, it seems such a strange thing that people would see Reanimator and not connect what you could do from that performance, that they would see it as like this gore. Do you think it was just the the nudity and the kind of outrageousness of that project that threw them? Yes. Yeah. Yes, because there's other aspects of that movie that makes it so much. But at its core, it really shows Stewart's ability. Yeah. 
uh, his uh, storytelling, that dialogue. Uh, Stuart's scripts are pretty much what Stuart wants them to be. And so the dialogue, the dynamics between characters, um, the the approach, uh, Stuart's a great, he casts so well. And he loves actors. And that he, was always uh, something I, he, yeah. When I would get together with Stuart, we would talk about old black and white. We would just talk about actors for, you know, yeah. an hour sometimes. Yeah, we would too. Stuart and I would do that too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it was fascinating to see, you know, Stuart didn't really technically know a lot about filmmaking when he started with Reanimator. Not very much. He, he understood a bit, but there were, yeah, as you know, Kevin being a director, you know, the concept of screen direction. Stuart would have arguments with Mac, the great Mac Albert, because Mac would, yeah. you can shoot it this way, Stuart. And Stuart would go, yeah, I can. And he goes, Editor will hate you. <laughs> what? No, it'll work. <laughs> you know, I remember that. So, but he learned fast. Yeah. Very fast. I I, I can't say enough about how wrong I was about Reanimator. I, 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 I thought no one would ever really see this movie. I just saw it as a juicy role um, and an opportunity to be on a set for four weeks and, yeah. and learn, uh, learn what a movie set was all about and, and how this whole thing worked. I never imagined that it would be uh, iconic. And did you and, and, you know, the actors in that film, you, Barbara Crampton, Bruce Abbott, David Gale, you know, all these great actors, was it an ensemble kind of approach? Did you, because with Stuart's background, I'm going to guess you had rehearsals and stuff, right? Well, I think that's one of the hidden secrets of of uh, Reanimator, and because Stuart came from the theater, we we rehearsed for a couple of weeks. We would just show up where Stuart was staying or somewhere else and run scenes, and get them to where we felt comfortable with them. And so that on a you know, Reanimator was shot in like eighteen days. It was just wham, bam, let's go, 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 go. But on most movie sets, it's like, okay, when do I move? And what's now what's happening? And, oh, you're going to stand there. And uh, but you're, you're figuring all that out because yeah. movies don't like to pay for rehearsal. Yeah. Uh, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't want to waste our time with rehearsals. You got to shoot. And so we just walked in and we, we kind of just had to make small adjustments based on where we were, but we, we'd already, we'd already, you know, lived with this stuff for two weeks. Yeah. So, so that is, that was a, that's a big lesson. Yeah. One that not a lot of people uh, are willing to pay for it again, because you can really save money if you do that. Not that we got paid. Right. We didn't, but we were willing. Did Stuart carry forward on the you know the projects he he continued to do doing rehearsals of that nature? Is that something he started had to let go of a bit? Yeah, I think those had to be sort of uh, that. I don't believe that happened much much more after that. Right. Uh, I, I I really don't think uh, that was a thing that he could continue to get away with. Actors of a certain stature would go. You no. want to know what? Yeah, not doing it. Yeah. Reanimator, of course, 
beyond like just, you know, it being a seminal film is the beginning of your friendship, of course, with Stuart, but also a work relationship that, you know, went on for the rest of Stuart's life. And, and you guys made all these great projects together and, and, you know, not a lot of filmmakers and actors develop a relationship like that. You know, it, it happens, but, but I think that's really special for you and Stuart that you got to keep working it throughout your, you know, your, your life. Did you guys develop sort of a process together that gave you like a shorthand? You'd get on set on a new project and go, all right, this, we just know where we're at with this. I just think for a director, uh, Stuart just, you know, I worked with quite a number of directors and Stuart coming from the theater and having his own company at the Organic Theater in Chicago. Uh, he always had actors in mind, whatever project was coming along. He had a troupe, he had a core of actors, and he brought that mindset with him to film. And so if he uh, connected with an actor uh, and, and liked what they did, then he would just kind of consider that person as part of his company. Right. Kind of like, uh, you know, Robert Altman would do that. Scorsese certainly does that. Tarantino does that. And then there's a lot of directors who every film they do, there's nobody that he's ever worked with. Sort of like they make that decision, right? But Stewart would know that he could put somebody that he was familiar with and that problem was solved. That role was solved. And so because there's a lot of problems to solve when you're a director. So, you know, I was on his team. Yeah. And, you know, do you remember a point, you know, was it the second film you guys, or third film you did, you know, where you were like, this is, you know, this is good. I like this being part of this team. This is a good place for me to be. Well, you know, in between, though, I was doing other things. Yeah. So it wasn't like I was completely beholden to uh, Stuart for work, um, but I was always thrilled to to work with him. That doesn't mean there weren't uh, times of uh, artistic debate. Yeah, yeah. Stuart really liked uh, to go farther than anybody wants to go sometimes, and. Uh, I'm no pushover. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah. I remember Barbara Crampton saying with Stuart more is not enough. Yeah. Yeah. And as an actor, you go, I don't really want to go that far. That seems uh, <laughs> too far for me. I, so I kind of developed a way of just like doing what I do and not really getting into a conversation with him because if I did, that might make him <laughs> really push the issue and he could be very stubborn we'd be talking with different actors on projects he'd work with and stuff and we were talking about lance henriksen because you remember there was a, a western i was working on for a while and and you and lance were gonna we're, we're gonna play a, a sheriff and a deputy in that if you remember it oh yeah yeah and i lance and i had spent a lot of time working on the material and stuff and and Stuart said oh lance is great like, but i'm gonna tell you like you know you're very prepared because he with lance like he'll he'll challenge you and i was like no that's that's good and and then when i talked to lance he said well i gotta tell you like Stuart, like he you know he loves to challenge us like <laughs> Stuart liked what he wanted he just you know this is what i want but that doesn't always not always the best choice <laughs> right. I try to please my directors, but sometimes it's like, mm, 
I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Well, especially with Stuart, because, you know, in Stuart's movies, he he asks actors to do some pretty crazy things. Tell me. Yeah. <laughs> Don't need to tell you. Yeah. I remember talking to Ken Forey about From Beyond, and he was like, did you see what I didn't get to wear in that one? I was like, yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I certainly did. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. You know, also, I think it's cool to look at, you know, some of the actors that on Reanimator and some of those programs that you, with Barbara Crampton, an actor you got to work with the time and time again on different mm-hmm. projects. And when you work with the same actor and over again, is do you develop uh, sort of little things between you that kind of go unspoken when you get into character in a scene where you're like, OK, well, more and more we do this, the more there's a shorthand there? Or? No, I don't think so. Uh, first of all, you know, the big spans of time in between there and we're always just sort of comfortable to reconnect up it's not a it's more of a comfort level than it is in, in anything else you know right um it's like familiarity yeah uh and so you know all of those working together again is it all comes back to reanimator and from beyond because people go "Ooh, you were in that together and wouldn't it be great if you're in this together and it's like well doesn't always work out, does it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and from beyond, too, is like, you know, which I saw quite a bit later than when I saw Reanimator, was such a different character for you than Herbert. You know, Herbert was like, he was the catalyst for everything that happens, where Crawford was more, I don't want to say reactionary, but, no, you know. Uh, listen, uh, I was, if you want to look at it this way, in from beyond, Barbara was sort of Herbert West and I was sort of Dan Kane. That's kind of a, yeah, that's a, that's a good way to look at it. Right. I I was, I was reactionary. I was, uh, I was responding. You can't, we can't. No, I won't. Uh, uh, Passive almost. And, and so I, you know, it's, it's as an actor having tools, uh, you know, being the driving force, being the one pushing the narrative, and then being the one that's reacting to the narrative uh, is different muscles. Uh, right. I felt very um, vulnerable, kind of at sea a little bit in From Beyond because I didn't have any of that. There was no, there was no uh, wit. Uh, there was there, there was no uh, I'm taking over. Uh, it was all happening to me. And that's a much harder role to play, actually. Uh, I yeah. think the young hero of Reanimator is actually Bruce Abbott. That that role is sort of the stick in the mud character, right? The guy that you're like, uh, can be kind of thankless. You know, I've said this before, it's kind of boring, but if Herbert playing lead guitar, then, then, then Dan Kane's rhythm guitar. But you, yeah. you need them both. Yeah, when Brian Hughes was on the show, he was talking about how you, you know the red clown and the white clown or something, and how it was constantly about like making sure that you have that. You know, they need a foil. That's sort of classic sort of yes. setup. When Brian took over the series after Stewart didn't come back for Bride, what did did you you know notice to me that Brian was doing different things with the with the characters and the story than than you think Stewart might have done? Like, how did he sort of change the direction? I don't think so much doing different things with. The- characters per se listen if Stuart had done it it would have been a completely different ball game it would have been like can't even imagine what he would have 
come up with for a sequel. At the time, Stuart agent, and, and this was sort of a generalized belief, I guess, that if you really want to move up the chain as a director, you don't do sequels. Mm-hmm. You'll cheapen yourself, which is one of the reasons why Stuart didn't do another reanimator. He sort of listened to that advice, I suppose, or accepted it. I don't know if that was particularly the best advice, but that's what that's what happened. Uh, Brian uh, Brian was much more uh, technical. Uh, he knew how to get coverage. Um, but he wasn't so much in ability to talk with actors the way Stuart could. You, you know what I mean? He's quite proficient. Brian did a wonderful job, but it, but he, you know, he didn't get too much into nuance with the actors. He knew that we could just kind of, take care of ourselves we knew the characters better than he did there's that scene in brighter reanimator where uh your characters and like i think it's like a it's like an evidence room or something you see the the dr hill head and you do that laugh that you do in that scene kind of where you that's to this day every time i see that scene it cracks me up that laugh is so like because that's not your laugh like that's not how you laugh what do you think it is about herbert west that people love about that guy so much about that character that makes him such a fun, you know, because he's not like a good guy, but he's sure a lot of fun to be in, you know, to be in the company of, unless you're Dan Cannon. Of course. I think he personifies the fantasy that everybody has, that they are in control, that they are uh, superior. Uh, and, and the word that I come up with is that he doesn't compromise no deviation and no apologies for who he is. And I, I think that people can relate to that kind of um, fantasy that that's how life could be if only I were uh, like that. Was there a catharsis in that? Was it fun to play him? Oh, juicy. Really juicy. Um, he never, Robert never really changes. No, he doesn't. You know, that. That that's the and that's sort of the classic sort of format, right? Of a movie is you have a character and they have to go through a journey. So they have something has to change, but not Herbert West. <laughs> no, it's just the work, continuing the work. Get out of my way. Do you think by the time you got to the third film, and and Dan isn't in that one, it's a different actor stuff. Do you think that that putting Herbert in prison and taking Dan away? Do you think that changed the formula too much, or do you think it worked out all right? Well, I like the idea of that Herbert, even in prison, is continuing the work, <laughs> is very much in character. Nothing's going to stop him. Oh, I, I, you took away my lab? Well, you know, I can get things. And yeah, there are rats around here I can experiment with. And um, I'm just going to continue on until I get out of here. Uh, so it gave a backdrop to just show that it doesn't matter where Herbert is. He's just going to continue to uh, press forward with his ideas. Um, and I, 
you know, that's an admirable thing, although he's pretty amoral about it. But it's something that I think that audiences, uh, you know, that's what a lot of other iconic uh, roles are like. You know, James Bond is always James Bond. It kind of doesn't. There's hard. There's never a uh, a weak, whiny James Bond. Uh, there's who wants to see that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know, we don't want to see Herbert West sort of bear his feelings or have that moment or talk about his parents or you know that's not what we're here to see. No. You know, it was it was fun to go back and revisit Castle Freak, which I haven't seen in some years, uh, which you and, and, and Stuart did for Charlie Band's Full Moon Entertainment back in, what, 94? I think 93, 94 on there. Sounds about right. It's such a different vibe than the other films you and Stuart did together. It's it's quite a dark movie, and it's quite scary. And, and uh, your character in it is got a great dramatic arc. He starts out as this guy who's done some pretty selfish shitty things and by the end of the film there is kind of a redemption there um you know was that something that when you first got the script you were like hey Stuart, we're, this is really different you know we're gonna is this like how did you guys sort of tackle it as a different approach for for the kind of films you were used to doing together yeah i really uh i was really happy to get that role and Stuart to ask me to do it because it was meaty it was weighty and yeah. it's uh messy um, and and kind of tragic and yet redemption at the end. Uh, I we we sort of achieved something in that movie. We, uh, it, it's a complete lift from The Shining, the book, The Shining. Uh, it's a it's a man with a, a wife and a, and a child who's damaged the family. His drinking has literally killed his son and blinded his daughter. Great. Um, you know, why are they even together? Like stuff like that. Yeah, nothing too heavy. <laughs> uh, and he's trying, though. He's yeah. really trying. And that's right out of the book, The Shining. He's, you know, Jack goes to, the, to, to that hotel as a new beginning with his family. But when Kubrick got a hold of it, he just kind of jettisoned that sort of backstory. Uh, Jack Nicholson's just sort of crazy nutty right from the beginning. So there's, so there's no uh, struggle there. There's no shame there from what he done in the past yeah and so that's what i was trying to do was elucidate that i the, sh- the shame but I'm, I'm 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 doing my best i'm doing I'm, I'm gonna try to to redeem myself and and you know in a way he doesn't at first you think oh well he's he's back on the bottle and he's being a unfaithful and this is really bad but he does rise to the occasion and save his family yeah and maybe he comes to the realization that the only way the only way he can redeem himself and 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 in the eyes of his family is self-sacrifice i mean i kind of viewed it as like it's almost like you know for his character 
if he's still there and part of the equation that they won't be able to move on. And that's part of why he takes that jump. Did right. you, sir? Is, does that sound, is there anything to that? Do you think I'm kind of on track there? Well, I knew that they were strong enough to go on without me. It's just that if I didn't do what I did and take the beast with me over the top, over, over the edge, then they wouldn't survive. Yeah. So. I, I have to the other poetic sort of metaphor I, I, I do like psychologically about the movie is that if you think about it, the castle freak and me, we are uh, we are almost yin and yang. We have the same father and our mothers were sisters. Yeah. So we are almost three quarters brothers yeah which is kind of a way of saying you are me and i am you yeah you get to examine if not for fate i would have been you and you would have been you would have been me so it's almost a psychological examination of one person yeah and what fate uh uh doles out for you. you you know what i mean so i always really really like that about castle free i love uh watching it again there's this that last shot where barbara crampton is looking and she sees the, the you know the, the detective and he's got the little boy with him and it sort of ties up the whole themes of this thing and it got me to thinking that both you and barbara play in this movie these very kind of real people they're not heightened they're not caricature in any way yeah, um, you know, and and both of them are characters that at points throughout the movie, you kind of struggle to get on board with them. They're a bit cold or they're, you know, they're mad, they're upset, they're going through this horrible thing. But it's always just reined in it to the point where we we never stop caring about their plight or their journey, you know what I mean? Was that something you guys worked out together with Stuart? Sort of, you know, how do we make sure this these guys stay sympathetic while still going through this thing they're all dealing with? don't think it's something that you can work on or play you just kind of have to be that person i'm damaged goods from the get-go so so in in a way why would you care about me look what i've done yeah and so somebody who has made such a tragic stupid avoidable mistake like that it doesn't really draw you to them and go, Oh, I want to know more about this person. Yeah. You're, you're kind of judgmental about them. And so my job was sort of just sort of play, you know, uh, shame. I, I know, I, I know I really fucked up and irredeemably maybe, but, uh, but what alternative do I have but keep trying? And for her, I, 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 it it was cathartic for me to like, why did she even go on this trip with me? Because of what I've done, I would have been out of there. Yeah. I would have, you killed my child and I want nothing more to do with you. And you blinded my daughter. How, how fucking dare you uh, get out of my life? Yeah. And yet, and yet, you know, I suppose this inheritance of this castle, you got to be careful about that because I really don't think that uh, Barbara's character was going because 
she was greedy or saw dollar signs and worth with this castle. I, I think we both sort it's a desperate Hail Mary to maybe get some sort of semblance of a relationship again. Yeah. And a family. And maybe a new place and a new dynamic will help us heal. And that's, I think, what we're both damaged, hurt, hurt people really, really, really trying to to heal. I think it's it's a beautiful bit of work you guys do in that film. It's very there's you guys have such great um there's a contact too when there's they have these little moments that almost feel like they might find that breakthrough and you know it's 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 a it's kind of it's really great stuff. I really I mean, what you do when your wife is so deeply disappointed in yeah <laughs> and rightly so yeah there's no defense for what I did so anyway um which brings us to a very different character the frighteners for the great Peter Jackson uh Milton Dammers who's just you know i don't even know how you describe milton but he's damaged <laughs> yeah that's for sure and it's a character that to me you know it is such a he's so much fun to watch he's so insane but but it's it's such there's such calibration for you as an actor to me in that role because at all points when you're i would imagine playing a, a portraying a character like milton there's that risk of what's too big, what's going over that line, right? And and the fact that that for you, Jeff, that you never that you always got right up to it, but never went over it. How did you kind of calibrate that? Well, I don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> uh, I was in uh, very caring, uh, and uh, I, I, I trusted him implicitly with Peter. I've never had a more collaborative experience with a director, a more generous, trusting. Peter uh, almost has, well, no, he has ego, but he, he but, it, but it's not front and center with him. It's, it's a, um, it's an ego with a good peace of mind about it. Uh, he's wide open to hear. And if, if if an idea strikes him on the spur of the moment, or if someone else suggests something, like my hair, <laughs> why did I do that? Uh, he he sees a good idea, yeah, and and embraces it full on. Uh, a good example is the uh, uh, the butt cushion. Yeah. yeah, not in the script, not in the script at all. Uh, that came out of us shooting the interrogation scene between I and Michael J. Fox. And at one point, Peter said, okay, so sit down, but then, then get right back up like you have hemorrhoids or something. No, no, that's, that's really funny. <laughs> because whatever he's been going through in the name of, for his country by being in a cult somewhere involved things we don't really want to think about. So that is really, really darkly funny. And out of that, he saw, he saw some comedy gold there and had his uh, prop people 
go find that, which was not easy. It's not easy. That is not a, uh, that is not a, that is not a butt, butt cushion. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is uh, that is actually an inner tube for a wheelbarrow. Oh. <laughs> Painted orange. Yeah. Right. But you know what it is. Yeah. And so he got more out of a passing moment because he just saw it and went, okay, I know we're, we're going to double down on that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? So I just had a great time with Peter. We laughed a lot and uh, worked hard and um, I'm very, 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 very proud of being, having had worked with him and in, in that movie. Yeah. You know, it's a funny thing too. It's a movie when it came out at the time, you know, the studio released it in the wrong way. And there's all these things that, you know, totally. yeah, that they blundered. Um, well, it was supposed to be a Halloween movie. And then uh Stallone movie, Daylight, went over. And it Daylight was a going to be a summer big blockbuster release, Stallone movie, you know, and it went over. So the slot suddenly became open for the studio. And they're looking at dailies and they went, well, we'll just move Frighteners earlier. And we were thrilled about that. But in retrospect, it was probably a mistake because I don't think Frighteners is a summer movie. No. And I think it, if I remember correctly, too, the, the partially because, you know, Michael J. Fox is it's people often see as a comedic actor and there's comedy in the Frighteners. But I think they sold it as a broader comedy in some way than it was. They sold the first half of the movie. You're right. Yeah. That's what, uh, so when the studios probably screened that for themselves, they probably went, whoa, whoa, what do we do? Because this isn't, uh, we can't pigeonhole this movie. It's very unique. And so they went for live action Casper comedy with Michael J. Fox with their ad. And what did that do? Uh, hardcore horror fans that would have loved that movie. They're not going to go to that. It's too light. And then the date movie thing. Oh, let's go see the Michael J. Fox. It looks funny. Uh, halfway through there. <laughs> what happened? You know, I remember like the press junket for Frighteners. The studio, it was in New York. And they didn't invite me. And then some of the other actors as well that were prominent in that movie. They 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 invited the people in the front part of the movie, and when they got to New York, all of the press was going, "Where are these guys? Yeah. Where?" Are they? And you know, what I hate is that the studio then went, "Oh well, they couldn't make it," as opposed to saying, "Well, we they didn't weren't know. asked." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it made me look like I didn't want like want to go or or, or something. It, it was just it was just kind of really mishandled pretty badly but does it for you you know is there a redemptive sort of thing of knowing that it has a lot of fans now and people love the movie sure yeah absolutely but you have to realize on the short term right there it's like well this is a studio movie i think i'm okay in this movie i'm really proud of it and i don't get the opportunities it might have otherwise afforded you Sure. Yeah, because that was a bigger film for you, I would think, too. It was a pretty big studio movie, yeah. After that, uh, you did House on High Hill for uh, Willie Malone. 
you know, a different kind of role too, because it's correct if I'm wrong. Do you even have dialogue, or is it all silent? The character. I have no dialogue. Uh, I thought so. I was like, I don't. No, if, originally, I think I had one line, and they they cut that. And I'm, right. I'm glad because the mystery of this enigmatic, scary guy who's present and intimidatingly icky, you know, it's kind of stood the test of time. People still rip off that kind of special effects quality that William did with that weird walk. I sure do, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and Bill Malone is such a, he has a great vision, you know, an aesthetic and and technical prowess in, in his films. And, you know, I was watching House on Hill thinking, though, like for you, you know, one of an actor's great tools, of course, is their voice. And you don't have that here. Um, was it but was it fun to get just sort of into your body and use that as your tool and just that's your only instrument or was it kind of? Well, to me, it was like my opportunity to step back in time and actually be in a way in one of those old universal films because that's exactly what bill was trying to manifest there is that kind of frankenstein mad doctor we're in trouble now yeah (laughs) kind of vibe you know when when doctors were allowed to do hideous things to people lobotomies and like just awful experimentation. So he's hearkening back to that. I, and I totally got that from him. I bless him for doing that. The story of that is that uh, actually this house that I'm in right now, I just bought it. And uh, my wife was pregnant. And I had a little girl in third grade and I put everything into this to get this house. And I'm standing phone and just I don't, I don't even know if, I guess cell phones existed then, you know, with like antennas. <laughs> yeah, some brick. Yeah. yeah. And um, my phone rang and I'm like going, and I need a gig. And uh, they had handed Bill Malone at the studio, whoever that was, Warner Brothers, I guess. Yeah. Uh, had handed him a list and said, these are pre-approved uh, people as opposed to Mr. Director what's your vision yeah casts who you see fit yeah no but he saw my name and went him get him i'd worked with bill once before in a short-lived series called perversions of science which is great yeah yeah and so we really we really clicked and got along i love bill and so bless him for that i won't spoil well, it for anyone if they, if they it's on youtube if people want to look but perversions of science your episode is called what is the the exile ex- the, ex- the exile yeah and it it has a really cool twist it's a lot of fun so it's got a lot of great cast too yeah brought, david brought warner warner yeah uh, i was thrilled to have a scene with jeff corey who is the judge and a lot of people go who's jeff corey well you know just pick any black and white movie from the 50s, 40s, 60s, and it's like move TV. I, I, I mean, this guy was well, a character actor who was in everything. And I was so thrilled that when I did the scene with him, he was uh, he was jump-starting into the scene. Like, instead of action, and then he starts saying his lines before action, he's just staring at me and going, you're a real piece of work, aren't you, pal? <laughs> you really, you are. You know, he's, he is getting us to the place. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like, this guy is in his 80s, and he's 
killing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's an actor. That's an actor. No shit. Yeah. That's great. Um, yeah. And you, and you and Bill Malone went on to do a bunch of films together. Again, you know, you, you sort of, this is, are we noticing a trend here, Jeff? With some directors. Yeah. You're a secret weapon, man. People, people put you uh, in the back pocket and when they're, when they really need to bring out Jeff Combs to do this. I've been very fortunate to be sort of thought of by a couple of really great directors, Stuart, William Malone, a couple of other people, my friend, Darren Scott, who's a producer, writer, director, Brian uh, Usna. Brian Usna. Yeah. He would use me and everything. So, uh, Charlie. Yeah. Charlie Ben. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've been, you know, repeat business is, <laughs> is, 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 is a good thing. Yeah. I mean, and it's fun too, cause it's great to go through all this. And part of the fun of doing this podcast for me is I get to talk to, you know, a lot of people whose work I admire and whose careers I've enjoyed for long. but I, it also, every time, you know, we book someone, we go, Oh, this person's going to come here to talk to this person. Then it's like, okay, Kevin, here's that person. I'll go through and sort of, you got to bone up on this person. And it's fun. I'm a movie buff. So I get to go and sit down and watch all these movies, you know, and talking to you. I went back and watched all this. A lot of it I'd seen before. Some of it I hadn't. We got to talk about Masters of Horror. Uh, another start, uh gift to me. Yeah, because it's the beginning of something pretty special for you too, right? Here's the interesting thing about that. Uh, maybe I find it interesting. 2004, I turned 50 and I threw a party. I never do that. And I threw a party and Stuart came and, um, and I said, uh, Stu, I've been reading uh, an autobiography of Poe and I can't believe anybody hasn't made a movie about his life. So fascinating. I mean, you know, Kirk Douglas did Lust for Life about, about Van Gogh, this troubled artist. Why hasn't anybody done this about Poe? And he listened, but he didn't really say anything about it. And, and about a year and a half, two years later, year and a half, we get an email from Stuart. He says, script's attached. I'd like you to play Poe. Awesome. What? Yeah. And so that's sort of the, I planted a seed and a, he watered it. And, uh, and the opportunity came along a couple of years later. And he, uh, and, and, and there you go, the black cat. I'm very proud of it. It's beautifully shot. The last time I worked on film, and um, and I just think it's uh, a beautiful piece. I watched it last night, and I'd seen it before. And I remember when you and I first met. I I, I said to you, I because I, I had just seen it probably around that time, I think. And I and I was gushing to you about how much I loved it. And and but I watched it again last night, and I I don't know how I had forgotten. It, it's so it's dark, man. Like it's intense and it's dark and it's. But it's Poe. Yeah, it, it, it has to be, right? It has to be. It has to be. Well, you know, Stuart said, he said, you know, people have tried to make Black Cat before, but they've never done the story. Nothing in there that's done to that cat isn't in the story. Yeah. He's the, this is what Poe wrote. It's, and, it's fucking hard to, you know, you can kill all the people you want in a movie. You start doing shit to animals and I'm like, uh. Guess what? No animals were ever hurt. <laughs> no, I'm sure. Yeah. And there were, uh, I think, like eight cats. Right. Cats aren't dogs. So if you want a dog, if you want a cat to jump up on a table, walk across and jump down, guess what? You got one cat to jump up, maybe walk across, but maybe another cat to walk across and then another cat to jump down because cats don't give a shit. Get, <laughs> they don't train. Like, yeah. 
so and then it was cats with one eye and cats that that I could grab that didn't have claws and you know I had so many cats all black cats it was like which one am I holding and then they'd run away too then they'd run away it's like anybody seen the cat <laughs> Well, and again, though, this is, you know, like in Star Trek, not it's different, but, you know, you had a prosthetic on here with the nose. When you throw on something like that, in this case, and it changes your face, does that immediately help you click into a character? Of course. Yeah. Uh, everybody has this experience. Uh, if you if you put on different shoes, you feel different. Cowboy boots make you feel different than tennis shoes. Uh, if you uh, dress up for Halloween, you feel different. Yeah. Cause it's called cosplaying, right? Yeah, on a <laughs> higher end, and yes, everything informs, and you use it uh, to ignore it would be stupid, right? Right. So you know the wig and the nose, my own mustache. Uh, it's transformative. That was shot in Vancouver, and the production values were so great. The wardrobe people, you know, a lot of the time I do movies, and they go, "Well, this is all we got." These people spared no expense they measured me they went out and they built a entire suit for me a period suit for me in short order uh that i still have actually i still use it well i used to whenever i would do the one-man show right was but it as simple as that? You just you guys just said you could experience some black cat. Stuart said maybe we should do a one man show. Is that well, how it, went? it wasn't that fast. Uh, right. Stuart said that, and I went, "I'm at that's a lot of work, and I don't want to do that." And uh, and he just like he he was like Yoda. He just kind of gently kept saying, "Yeah, you got to do that." And I was like, mm. and uh, honestly, the downturn, the economic downturn, two thousand eight, two thousand and nine, everything shut down, and it I felt so like everybody is so helpless and. Uh, what can I do? Yeah. And it filled a very, very uh, dormant, scary time for me with prepping, uh, learning, poems, uh, dialogue, short story. It gave me a frame where there was no frame in my life. So helpless and nothing was coming anybody's way, if you seem to recall that. And so... It really was a bit of a godsend. <laughs> and, you know, when you were playing Poe, as you already mentioned, he's just like this dark, tortured guy. Like, was it ever a challenge not to kind of take that home with you when you had to get into that headspace? Well, I would say I probably did. Uh, I mean, he's a very melancholy guy, um, uh, sad and also gifted. And, and not a lot of people think about this, but he was also very charming and funny, very witty, very wry, cutting kind of wit. And, you know, he'd say things like he hated Boston, even though he was born there. He didn't, well, he didn't hate Boston. He hated the Boston literati. He hated the writer. In those days, Boston was the place where poets and writers, true writers went or were from, and everybody else was nothing, especially if you're from the South, like Poe was. So he really despised them. And, you know, he would write things like, you know, you know, I like Boston. Their pies are very good. <laughs> but their poets, they're not good at all. <laughs> you know, yeah, he, he had a he had a clever skating wit about him. 
Last question for you. What's next? What are you working on? What can we look forward to? Well, recently I've been, um, uh, I've done two movies in the last uh, six months or so. Uh, Completely different. uh, A Western. uh, which I, which was, uh, uh, had a bit of a troubled production, but uh, I, I, I nonetheless had a really uh, fruitful and enjoyable time doing it, playing a really interesting uh, historical character. Um, so that's in post-production. And then uh, about a month ago, I finished filming a absolute whack interesting project um there's a guy uh who's quite well known on youtube called andrew bowser andrew bowser uh created a kind of a character that has kind of a a following uh on youtube and elsewhere um and um he decided to write a write a script about this character and uh, it's a really good script and you know kind of his backstory and uh, and uh he asked me to be to be in the the movie so uh it's one of the more <laughs> unique and insane kind of projects that uh, that I've ever done but I had a wonderful time creating that character and uh uh I, it's called Onyx uh the fortuitous <laughs> and, he, and it's uh it's really hard to describe started a gofundme campaign raised six hundred thousand dollars like like that and uh someone else contributed to, or matched that and so he had a pretty good budget and we shot in a really incredible location and um uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Is it a horror film or what kind of, what's the genre? So uh, it's very unique and it's really hard to describe, but anybody who knows who Andrew Bowser is or Onyx will probably go, Oh, wow. <laughs> When's that come up? You know, movies are like babies. Nine months, probably. Yeah, I, I right. really have no idea. Once I'm done, it's not in my hands anymore. So the gestation period has begun. Um, you know, they're they're not even done filming. I oh, actually okay. I actually go in in uh, about three weeks and do a couple of pickup days okay. that we're doing here in LA. And you 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 and Barbara got back together in something recently, didn't you? I saw she on her social media. Well, that, was, that, that was it. Although we're not, you know, back together is not exactly accurate. We're we're in the same movie. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. But we're not like. Uh, scenes together got it i'm curious the other day when i was telling you on the phone we were talking about the show and you recited that that last dream within a dream sort of can you could you could you say that for me that bit i love that that bit of that bit of poetry do you still have that in your in your pocket take this kiss upon the brow and in parting from you now this much let me avow you are not wrong who deem that my days have been a dream. Yet, if hope has flown away in a night 
in a day, in a vision, or in none. Is it, therefore, the last goal? All that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. I stand amid the roar of a surf-tormented shore, and I hold in my hand the grains of golden sand. How few, and yet how they creep through my fingers to the deep. While I weep, while I weep, oh God, can I not grasp them with a tighter clasp? Oh, God, can I not save one from the pitiless wave? Is all that we see or see but a dream within a dream? And then I blow a candle out. And it Thank goes you, through. Jeff. That's great. Thank you so much. Well, it's, uh, it's Poe. It's not me. It's yeah, he's sorry. basically saying, um, you know, life's short. Yeah, it's just, that show was so special. I loved it, and it's, you know, it's with your films, I could throw them on any time, but I can't throw on your play. So, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Well, that, that's okay. You have been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane and produced by Cindy McLean. Production editing and sound design provided by Blaine Swanson and One House Studio. Video production and editing generously created by Matt Handy. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. You're currently listening to supervising producer Jason Hill. For exclusive bonus content, giveaways, and contests, be sure to subscribe to our Patreon account at www.patreon.com forward slash spillyourguts. All one word. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by our supporters and listeners like you. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of Kevin's conversations with some of horror culture's titans of terror, as well as the many hours of bonus content, consider subscribing to our channel. But that's not the only way you can support what we do. If you like what you hear and you want more, get the word out to your friends, your family, random people on the street, retail cashiers, unattended babies, the hot guy you work with, on-duty members of law enforcement, anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for the guts and gore of horror. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening.